Mic on. Password loaded with SBL headphones. Plug in headphones to monitor. Mic off. Mic on. Good afternoon, folks. Welcome again. This time we're going to hear about Revelation's final appeal. Enjoy our feature presentation. Mic off. What does the future hold? Where can we find certainty in a world of uncertainty? The Book of Revelation provides hopeful answers for today, tomorrow, and forever. Join Mark Finley, author and world-renowned speaker, on a journey into the future with Revelation's Ancient Discoveries. The Book of Revelation is a book of contrasts. It talks about two leaders, the lamb and the dragon. Two harvests, harvest of golden grain, the saved, and the harvest of gory grapes, the lost. It talks about two cities, Jerusalem from above and Babylon from beneath. It talks about two spirits, the Holy Spirit that possesses men and women at the time of the end, and the unholy spirit of demons. The book of Revelation talks also about two women, and it's those two women that's the topic of our discussion for this presentation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we study the two great women of Revelation, notice the difference between the two. Help us constantly to distinguish between truth and error. Help us distinguish between error, falsehood, deception that is so gripping the minds of people and the clarity, the certainty, the definiteness of your truth. Come, Jesus, speak to our hearts and reveal yourself in this presentation in Christ's name. Amen. The topic for this telecast is Revelation's Last Appeal. As we go to the book of Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus. And Jesus loves us so much that he desires us to know the road ahead. If there were a bridge out on a rainy night because of the swelling of some river that knocked it out, and you knew your son, your daughter, was traveling that road, and they had a cell phone, wouldn't you call them and warn them that the bridge was out? Would you think, well, I don't want to offend them. That's the shortest way home. I don't want to upset them. I don't want to trade any trouble. I'm just going to let them drive. You wouldn't think that way at all. If there were an emergency, you would want to warn your son, your daughter, about that emergency. In the book of Revelation, God warns us of what's coming. He does it in Revelation in a variety of ways, but particularly by contrasting two women. Let's look at them both. In Revelation chapter 12, a woman arises. She's beautiful, dressed in white. She has a crown and 12 stars upon her head. She is pure, righteous, iridescent with the glory of God. What does a woman represent in Bible prophecy? Jeremiah 6, verse 2 says this, I've likened the daughter of Zion, now Zion's of course the church, to a lovely and delicate woman. God likens his church to a woman. You find that throughout scripture. In the book of Isaiah, he says, I've adorned you to myself. I've embraced you as a precious bride. This bride imagery is used in Jeremiah, 
It's used in Isaiah, certainly used throughout the New Testament as well. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about the church as the bride of Christ. Christ is the husband, the church is the bride. So a pure woman, a chaste woman in Scripture represents the church or the bride of Christ. When the church goes out after the world, according to James chapter 4 verse 4, the prophet says, you adulterers and adulteresses who have gone out after the world. So if the bride of Christ, the church, leaves her true lover, Jesus, and goes out after the world, that is called spiritual adultery. So in the book of Revelation, you have this woman, the faithful bride of Christ. She is faithful to Jesus. He is the passion of her life. She is faithful to his word. His word becomes her guiding principle. She is faithful to his law, and just like a loving wife desires to make her husband happy, so the bride of Christ desires to make him happy by pleasing him. But the scene quickly changes, and we go from Revelation chapter 12 to Revelation chapter 17. There is another woman presented here in Revelation 17, and this is not the true bride of Christ, not the faithful church of Christ, but this describes an apostate religious system. The New Testament church is radiant with Christ, the son of righteousness. The apostate church has drifted away from Christ, and she is not clothed in the garments of Christ's righteousness like the bride of Christ is. The bride of Christ stands on the moon. You know, the moon reflects the light of the sun, and so that would reflect in New Testament language the Old Testament. So the New Testament church emerges standing on the foundation of the Old Testament. This woman has 12 stars upon her head. The church, guided by its leadership, are 12 disciples or 12 apostles. She's clothed with white raiment. She has the righteousness of Christ, and according to Revelation 19, uh, verse 9 and onward, that the righteousness of Christ is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what do I see, and what do we see from the biblical symbolism of Revelation 12? We see the bride of Christ, faithful to Christ, basing her teachings on the word of Christ, guided by divine administrators, the apostles, and clothed with the righteousness of Christ that leads her to do good works. Um, here in Revelation 17, we see quite a different picture. Revelation 17, verse 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now notice this woman is called a harlot. She's left her true lover, Jesus. She has drifted away from the one that woos her and desires her to come back. Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot, this fallen church system, this apostate church system who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now let's look at every phrase in that passage. This woman sits upon a scarlet-colored beast. She's decked out in her scarlet and purple. She's ornamented. She has a wine cup in her hands, 
and she passes it around and the world gets drunk with it. What does the beast represent? What does the wine cup represent? What about this woman? Who does she represent? Revelation 17 verse 15, what about these waters that she sits on? Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. What then does the water or the sea represent? Multitudes, nations, or tongues. So this woman dominates multitudes of peoples. This must be an international power, a power that has deceived peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now what is fornication? Fornication is an illicit union. So this woman, the fallen church power, unites with the state in an illicit union rather than uniting with her husband, Jesus Christ, in a legitimate union. So what we're seeing here is a picture of a compromised church, a church in apostasy that is united with the state powers. In the fallen church system, the church is united with the state. In the true church system, the church is united with Jesus Christ. In the true church system, you have one thing, and that is union with Jesus, oneness with Jesus, fellowship with Jesus. Fallen church system, betrayal of Christ, union with fellowship, cozying up to the state powers. The fallen church looks to the kings and political leaders of the earth for power. And any time the church does that, it indicates apostasy and certainly the spiritual weakness of the church. When the church turns to the state for its power, it indicates that it has lost the power of God. So verse 3, Revelation 17, so he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet colored beast, beast representing the state, fallen woman, the church. The church then governs or drives the state, which is full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads, ten horns. The harlot woman of Revelation 17, of course, represents that false system of religion. The beast on which she rides represents what? The state. So church-state union. In the Bible Commentary, page 593, by Fawcett and Jameson and Brown, the comment is made very insightful. State and church are precious gifts of God, but the state being desecrated becomes beast-like. The church apostatizing becomes the harlot. So Bible commentators down through the ages have recognized this symbolism of church-state union. Now the woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet. So here we have a fallen church system that unites with the state in the period of the dark ages whose colors are purple and scarlet. And she's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So here is a church-state union. The church becomes wealthy. Its churches become lavish and uh, it grows up in the dark ages out of Rome. Now notice it says there's a golden cup full of abominations. The golden wine cup in her hand, of course, 
represents the intoxication of false doctrine. When you drink wine or alcohol, it impacts the brain. It impacts conscience, reason, and judgment, so you can't think well. One night I was outside of Chicago preaching in LaGrange, Illinois. Actually, it was in a YMCA, and I was preaching away. I was young, and I was preaching enthusiastically on the wine of Babylon. And a drunk man walked into the meeting, fell asleep in the back. And I'm preaching along, and I'm saying, wine defiles your conscience. You can't think straight. You can't reason straight. You become irrational. And the old drunk woke up. And as he woke up, he stood up again, shaking his finger at me, saying, that's enough, young man. That's enough, young man. He didn't care about the rest of the sermon. But when I said something about wine affecting your brain, that old guy stood up, that's enough, young man. It's one of those memories I have in my preaching down through the, the years. You see, wine does affect the brain. So it's a good representation of false doctrine. People get so confused, so befuddled with the false doctrine of the world that they need to be sobered up by the Word of God. They become so confused and inebriated with the intoxicated, with the false teachings of Babylon. So what's the prediction? Church and state would unite. The wine cup of Babylon, false doctrines would be passed around. Millions of people would take those false doctrines and they would be religiously confused. Notice Revelation 17, verse 5, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots in the abominations of the earth. Now notice the expression, the mother of harlots. So here you have the great mother church that would grow out of Rome, church and state would unite, she would pass around her wine cup of false doctrines, people would be confused, and this mother church would also have many daughter churches, Protestant daughter churches, who hadn't always broken from mother. They haven't come all the way out of mother. So the Protestant Reformation, raised up by God, anointed by God, truth restored, but here's the challenge. Most of those Protestant churches did not go far enough. They still imbibed some of that wine cup, still accepted some of the false doctrines, some of them baptism of infants that has no foundation in the Bible. Some of them, the idea of the immortality of the soul, the soul going on, pagan philosophy, no foundation in the Bible, Greek philosophy. Some of them retain idols in their worship. Again, no foundation in the Bible. And most of them retain Sunday worship, which again, not founded in Scripture. So here in Revelation 17, Babylon is a term used by God to describe apostasy, falsehood, the teachings of men coming into the church, or more accurately, religious confusion, where human beings and their teachings become the center. Now, did you notice the expression, Babylon, the mother of harlots? If you're going to understand this prophecy, it's necessary to understand Babylon. Why does the Bible say Babylon when Babylon had long been destroyed? Babylon ruled from, AD 60, from BC 605, 605 BC to 539 BC. In 539, the Medes and Persians overthrew Babylon. So what does the New Testament mean when it talks about Babylon? 
you have in the Bible literal Babylon that was the Old Testament phenomena. Literal Babylon was this power in the days of Daniel that was a world-ruling, world-dominant power. In the book of Revelation, you have spiritual Babylon. Spiritual Babylon is to revive many of the teachings of Old Testament pagan Babylon. Spiritual Babylon is a false religious system, just as literal Babylon was a false religious system that stood against the Israelites. But if you're really going to understand spiritual Babylon and understand the book of Revelation, you have to go back and look at literal Babylon and say, what was the very foundation of literal Babylon's beliefs? If I can understand literal Babylon's beliefs, then I can understand something about spiritual Babylon, and particularly I can understand God's call out of spiritual Babylon. False doctrines would come into the church through this false religious system called Babylon. So Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them through your truth, your word is truth. Babylon always, Old Testament, New Testament, turned from the truth of God's word to falsehood, turned from the certainty of God's word to the teachings of man. Christ is leading us back to his word. He's leading us back to the truth of his word. So let's go back to Old Testament Babylon. What's its origin? Its origin was at the Tower of Babel. You remember God said that he would never destroy the world with a flood again. After the Noah's flood, the Babel builders came to build that tower. They built it in defiance of God. They said, if God ever destroys the world with a flood again, we will build a tower up into heaven and we will be able to survive that flood. Of course, that was contrary to God's word because he promised with the rainbow in the sky they did never send a flood again. So the Tower of Babel was built by human beings in defiance of God. What happened at the Tower of Babel? Genesis 11, verse 9, therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. So the builders were building in defiance of God with human pride and arrogance and authority that they're going to build this tower to heaven. God confuses the languages. It was on this site that Babylon, the city of Babylon, was built. So what does Babylon represent? It represents confusion, confused religion. Rather than the clarity of God's truth, the light of God's truth, the word of God, it represents confusion, represents distorted religion. It represents the religion of man rather than the religion of Christ. They were, we at the church is to proclaim truth, not babble in confusion. Now, there are at least five major characteristics of this Old Testament Babylon. And to understand the foundation of Babylon is to understand Revelation chapter 17 and what's happening in the Christian church. The first characteristic of Old Testament Babylon is this, Daniel 4 verse 30. So in Old Testament Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar speaks and it says, the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power for the honor of my majesty? Here's point one. Babylon represents a human system. Nebuchadnezzar says, is not this great 
Babylon that I have built. So the false religious system of Revelation 17 is built on the teachings of men. It is built on the word of man. It's built on the traditions of man rather than the living word of God. So Babylon is a man-made system of religion. It's a human system of religion. It's kind of interesting when the archaeologists, Robert Coldaway and his team, excavated Old Testament Babylon, they excavated the procession way, which leads into the Ishtar gate that led into the city. And as they did, every brick had Nebuchadnezzar's name written on it. So Nebuchadnezzar was filled with pride, filled with egotism, and Nebuchadnezzar dominated Babylon. So New Testament spiritual Babylon would represent the teachings of man rather than the teachings of Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said, I am going to build my church. So Babylon is a system built by man and here the New Testament church is built by Christ. Now, I've had some people say to me, I don't want to have anything to do with the church. The church is a bureaucratic institution. I want to worship at home. I don't trust organizations. But Jesus says, I will build my church. The true church of Christ is not man-made. It's Jesus-made. What did Jesus say about the church? He said, I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Down through the ages, Satan has persecuted the church. Satan's brought falsehood into the church. But Jesus has already said, a faithful remnant, a faithful body of believers that would not compromise their integrity. Jesus said, I'll build my church. And what? What? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So two systems of religion, two streams of religion, one man-made, one God-made. One built on confession to a man, the other built on confession to Jesus. One built on the pre-earthly priesthood, the other built on Christ's death, resurrection, and his heavenly priesthood. One that directs our attention to lavish earthly temples, the other that directs our attention to the heavenly temple where Christ reigns for us. Jesus says through the apostle Paul that we have a high priest that we can come boldly to to find grace and help in the time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, we can come and open our hearts to Christ. We can come and find in him salvation, in him forgiveness, in him freedom from guilt, in him a high priest who meet our every need. We have sinned. We cannot approach God. We are not worthy to approach God. But in Jesus and through Jesus as our priest, we can come before the heavenly courts knowing that Jesus is there for us. Jesus is calling us from all human systems of religion. He's calling us to put him first in our lives He's calling us to the church that he has built. Scripture is playing on the authority of Christ. Colossians 1, verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Christ is the head of the church. You see, in true Christianity, the church does not have an earthly head. 
In true Christianity, there may be spiritual leaders that guide the church, and we praise God for them. There may be spiritual leaders that give governance to the church. We're thankful to them. But in true Christianity, the only true head of the church, the one who has preeminence over all, is Jesus Christ. The true church of God is the only organization so big that its body is upon earth, but its head is in heaven. The church of God looks to Jesus for its salvation. The church on earth, the earthly Babylon, a man-made system, looks to a human being for whose decrees are declaimed to be infallible. So there's a major shift of emphasis from the total, absolute, 100% dependence on Christ and a looking to an earthly leader. In the last days, a church-state system would arise called spiritual Babylon that would have a spiritual leader that would claim to speak ex cathedra, that is, out of the chair, infallibly for God. But yet God calls us from the lavishness. God calls us from the authority of man. God calls us from the preeminence of human leaders. God calls us from the authority of human leaders to the preeminence of Christ, to the authority of Christ, to believing that there is only one leader, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing about Babylon, second great principle is this. Babylon was the center of image worship. When you look at Babylon in the Old Testament, it is filled with idols and images. Christ invites us to come directly to Him. He is our intercessor. He is our priest. We need not come to Jesus through idols. We need not come to Jesus through images. The Bible says this in Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourself any carved image, any likeness of anything in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. What is one of the major dangers of making images? One of the major dangers of making images is people consider those images sacred they consider those images as having some intrinsic internal holiness. So they come, they light candles before the images, burn incense before the images. Some of them in these great churches in Rome come and kiss the feet of the images. And the images take on a certain sense of holiness. They take on a certain sense of worthiness. Christ is the only one who had nails through his hands for us. Christ is the only one who hung on a cross for us. Christ is the only one who died for us. We can come to God through Christ, not with the intercessors of images as intercessors between us and God. Jesus stands before the throne of God in our behalf. Jesus stands before the throne of God for us. We approach God directly, not through images or icons. We approach God through Jesus Christ. One of the key characteristics of Babylon is that Babylon would have false teachings about death. The immortality of the soul from ancient pagan Babylon 
would come directly into the Christian church. Now we find that as well in the Old Testament that the idea of immortality, the worshiping of the dead, did impact Israel at one time. You go to Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 13 and 14, and it says this, and he said to me, turn again and you will see greater abominations that they're doing. So the Ezekiel the prophet comes to the Old Testament sanctuary, and there the prophet says, look at what you're going to see. Look at the abominations. What abominations? What was taking place at the Old Testament sanctuary? Pagan influences actually had impacted Israel. False teachings had actually impacted Israel. The pagan ideas of immortality and the pagan gods had actually impacted the people of God. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. What's the Lord's house? Of course, the temple. And it says here, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now, why would you have in ancient Israel women weeping for Tammuz? First, you have to ask yourself the question, who was Tammuz? Tammuz was the god of the resurrection, they believed. So the idea was when the sun was up and the crops died, that's because Tammuz had left or died, gone. Then when the crops revived, then Tammuz returned. So the God of the resurrection. So they're weeping for Tammuz. They're weeping and they believe in this idea, the immortal nature of Tammuz, that he'd live on. So you have the idea of the immortality of the soul. You have it all through ancient paganism. The Egyptians believed in the idea of the immortality of the soul. They believed in the idea of the Ba and the Ka. And uh, Ba stays by, the Ka leaves the body at death, and then the Ka comes back looking for the Ba, idea of immortality of the soul. You find that as well in the Greek philosophy, they believed that the body was the prison house of the soul and that when the individual died, that the soul could live on immortally. That's why some of the Greeks accepted suicide because they believed you couldn't impact the soul, which was immortal within that body. The, you find this very, very prevalent, of course, in Babylonian culture. The idea of spirits, the idea of immortality, the idea that people live on in this immortal soul. Now, when you look at the Bible, you have something quite different. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5, the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Notice the living know that they'll die, but the dead don't know anything. So here the Bible is very plain, that death is but a sleep. Fifty-three times the Bible mentions death as a sleep. You look at the Old Testament, and here's a phrase repeated again and again, they slept like their fathers, they slept like their fathers. You look at Psalm 17, verse 15, where David speaks, he says, one day I, uh, I sleep, but then I awake in his likeness. In other words, David understood the idea of sleep. You look at Acts chapter 2 uh, and verses uh, 30 and onward. It says that David has not yet ascended up into heaven. 
So why not? David was sleeping. You look at the book of Job, and it says there, Job says, shall mortal man, Job 4, be more just than his maker? Job says, I'm mortal. Then Job 19, verse 25, he says, for I know that the latter day my Redeemer will live on the earth, and no worms destroy this body, and my flesh shall see God. What was Job looking forward to? The glorious day of the resurrection when Christ would come. You find this all through the Old and New Testament. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for example, will not all sleep, but we will wake in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 55. You find 1 Thessalonians 4, verse uh, 16 and 17. It says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall do what? Rise first. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Comfort one another with these words. So the Bible always is talking about this idea. There is a glorious resurrection when Christ comes. And when he comes, he's going to resurrect the dead. This is contrary to the Babylonian idea that there's this immortal soul that leaves the body. That actually prepares the way for spiritualism because if there's a soul that leaves the body at death, then under unusual circumstances might that soul not communicate back with the living. So the Bible is very clear. It's very plain. Satan came to the Garden of Eden and he said to Eve, if you partake of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will not surely die. She said, but, but God said, if I take it, we'll die. The devil's first lie was over death. He said, you're naturally immortal. John 8, verse 44. He is a liar. The devil is a liar. And he's the father of lies. First lie was over this subject of death. The Bible teaches that when Christ comes, the dead will be resurrected. 1,500 times in the Bible, it mentions the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ as lightning shines from the east even to the west, Matthew 16, verse 27. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Here in Scripture, all of history is moving. All of the events of this earth are moving to one glorious climax, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Contrary to the Bible, the Babylonian system, church and state unite. The Babylonian false system passes around its wine cup. People are drunk with that. They look to popes and priests and prelates. The traditions of men take the place of the Word of God. They look to human tradition and works for salvation rather than the sole, total, only, all-sufficient grace of Christ. They use idols in their images, in their worship system. They misunderstand the whole concept of death and have the idea of the immortal soul and worship through those images where the Bible teaches the glorious truth of the resurrection that husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, families will be reunited again. Think about that glorious day. Have you lost some husband or wife by death? 
some father, mother by death, some sister, brother by death, some baby by death. One day there will be a glorious resurrection morning. Now, Babylon was also the center of sun worship. Babylon worshipped the sun gods. For example, the god Bel Marduk was a sun god of Babylon. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 16, this is quite surprising. In fact, in my view, this is one of the most surprising texts in all the Bible because Israel at this period of time were turning their backs toward the temple of God, turning their backs toward the law of God in worshiping the sun. The scripture actually says that, Ezekiel 8, verse 16. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house and there at the door of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Did you catch that? What were these worshipers doing? Where did they have their backs turned toward? Notice it says their backs were turned toward the temple of the Lord. Here in the temple of the Lord, in the inner sanctum of that temple, you have the most holy place of the sanctuary. And there in that most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. Above the Ark of the Covenant, you have two angelic cherubim. Between the cherubim, you have the Shekinah glory of God. At the base of that Ark of the Covenant, or within the Ark of the Covenant, you have the Ten Commandment Law. The Ten Commandment Law, that law written with God's own finger on tables of stone, that law that is the foundation of his government, that law that is the eternal code of heaven's conduct. And here it says about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord. So their backs are turned away. Their faces are turned away from the sanctuary. Their backs are turned toward the sanctuary, toward the law, symbolizing the disregard of the rebellion against God's law. Their faces were toward the east. And what were they doing? Worshiping the sun toward the east. You see, that's Ezekiel 8, verse 16. But you remember Ezekiel chapter 20 says, my Sabbaths as I given them as a sign between me and them. So you have two forms of worship. The sun worship in Ezekiel 8, Sabbath worship in Ezekiel 20 as a sign between God and his people. So Babylonian worship was actually sun worship, the worship of the sun. The sun was the largest luminous body in the heavens. And so naturally, they thought the sun brings light, the sun brings life, and they turned from the creator to the object of his creation. They turned from the one who had made and fashioned to the things that were made and fashioned. They turned from the truth of God in worshiping him on the Sabbath as a symbol of his creative authority in harmony with the commandments of God to worshiping the object of creation, the sun. Sun worship crept into the Old Testament Israelite believers during this time of apostasy and paganism. What does the Bible predict? That in the last days of earth's history, church and state would fully unite. Sun worship would be enforced by law again. We'll study more about that in another presentation. 
it was in those early centuries of compromise, down in the fourth century, that um, Constantine united, church, state united, to win the pagans. Sun worship came into the church. In the Worship of Nature, volume 1, page 529 by James G. Fraser, we read, in ancient Babylonia, the sun was worshipped from immemorial antiquity. Here, sun worship was part of Babylonian culture. Sun worship would then again, unwittingly, unknowingly by many. Now, let me make it plain. There are many people today, wonderful, lovely, committed Christians. And many of you are, are watching this telecast. And you may have no idea of the history or the background of sun worship that was part of Babylonian culture, part of pagan culture, that it came into the Christian church in compromise. And you say, is the Sabbath a matter of salvation? Does this mean if I'm keeping Sunday, I'm not saved? It doesn't mean that at all. Only Christ is our Savior. Jesus is the one that redeems us by His grace. But when we're redeemed by His grace, we long to obey Him. And when God sends a message calling us from the Babylonian teachings of this world, our hearts long to respond as genuine, authentic Christians. We long to respond and do exactly what Christ said. We long to be free from deception. We long to be free from falsehood. In the two Babylons, that is the Babylon in the Old Testament and Babylon in Revelation, author Alexander Hislop, page 105, says this, to conciliate the pagans, that's to make them feel good, to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated. That is to unify the Christian Sunday with the pagan Sunday. Christians had been keeping the Sabbath. Some had begun keeping the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection. And therefore now the attempt was to unite those two days. To get paganism and Christianity now far sunk in idolatry. So Christianity was drifting away from its Lord. Christianity was sunk in idolatry, sunk in deception, sunk in false teachings. This is why it's called the Dark Ages. In this, as in so many other things, to shake hands. So here you see Christianity and paganism are shaking hands. And what are they shaking hands over? The Babylonian teaching of sun worship. That indeed was happening. Christianity and paganism shook hands in those early centuries. And uh, Dr. Edward Hiscox in the Baptist Manual, the author of the Baptist Manual, made this amazing statement. He was lecturing to a large number of Baptists up in Canada. And he made this statement. It just shocked them. It sent shockwaves through that assembly of Baptist preachers. He said, what a pity that it, Sunday. Now, this is Edward Hiscox, November 13, 1893. He's speaking at this great ministry convention. He's reading from the Baptist Manual. What a pity that it's Sunday comes branded with the mark of paganism, christened with the name of the sun god, and then adopted and sanctioned by the papal apostasy and bequeathed as a sacred legacy 
to Protestantism. So Hiscox, author of the Baptist Manual, traces where Sunday came from. Came from pagan apostasy. Came from the days of paganism. Then it came into the early Christian church, the papacy. Then it came from there into nominal Protestantism. Do you see the call of God in Revelation 17? The woman, the church, who's betrayed her true lover Jesus and committed spiritual adultery, fills her wine cup with falsehoods. She unites with the state in those early centuries, particularly during that wilderness period of 1260 years, passes her wine cup around, and the world wonders after the beast and is drunk with those false teachings. She has many Protestant daughters who have not come all the way out. And notice what the Bible says, Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. God has given his Sabbath. His Sabbath is a sacred sign. His Sabbath that is to distinguish his people. His Sabbath is his flag of identity that in age of evolution we worship the creator and not the creatures. Here, down through the centuries, God has had godly men and women, the Waldensians, godly people who are persecuted for their faith. John Huss, a godly man, persecuted for his faith. Martin Luther, godly man, persecuted. And the Wesley, all these men had some light of truth, but yet they retained, unfortunately, some Babylonian teachings. And God at end time is leading us back, leading us back just before the coming of Christ to the fullness of truth, leading us back just before the return of our Lord to the totality of Scripture, leading us back just before the final hours of verse history, back to the urgency of total, absolute commitment to Christ, understanding that grace leads us to obedience, leading us back in an age of evolution to worshiping the Creator by worshiping on the Bible's Sabbath. The Bible says in Ezekiel 22, verse 26, her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy. That happened in ancient Israel when they turned their backs to the east and worshiped the sun in Ezekiel 8. That happened in ancient Israel in Ezekiel 20 when they turned back to the true Sabbath as a sign. You see, God was calling the priest back to the true Sabbath as a sign. So you see in Ezekiel 8, the sun worship. Ezekiel chapter 20, the Sabbath worship. And you see that conflict between good and evil, that conflict between Christ and Satan. But the priests, many of them, still violated God's law. They profaned God's holy things. They didn't distinguish between the holy and the unholy. They didn't make a distinguish between the clean and the unclean. Now notice. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath so that I may be profaned among them. Many in the days of ancient Israel, when they went aping after, worshiping the sun, hid their eyes from the true Sabbath. Today, there are those hiding their eyes from the Sabbath. God reveals the truth. He gave his Sabbath back at creation when he created the world, not simply to the Jews, but to all humanity. In fact, even Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, for all humanity. 
Jesus says in the book of Revelation that he's going to have a final end time people. That final end time people are going to restore all the truths of the Bible. They will come back to the Bible as the word, back to Christ as their preeminent savior, back to the call to live in harmony with Christ and glorify their bodies with only that which Jesus invites them to eat or drink, just like really New Testament Christianity. You see the Babylonian system of religion. Babylonia was party, wine, drink, eat, you know, unclean foods. God's calling us back to treat our bodies as a temple, not a plaything. He's calling us back to deny those earthly cravings that destroy these bodies of ours with unclean foods. Jesus is calling us back to the truth about death, the truth about the fact that death is but asleep till his coming. He's calling us away from the whole idea of the immortality of the soul that opens our minds for spiritualism. Jesus is calling us back, back, my friend, to believe that we're on the knife edge of eternity, back to the fact to believe, like the New Testament disciples did, that Jesus Christ is coming again. And Jesus is calling us back, back to his Sabbath, back to rest in him, back to understand that in Christ, worshiping on the Sabbath, we can understand our true identity, that we are his children, that we did not evolve, that he created us. He's calling us back, back to understanding that he has a people, a people that are a Bible-believing, Christ-centered, Sabbath-keeping Adventist people, and he's calling us to that people, calling us to stand courageously for him, calling us back to his word, calling us back to scripture, calling us away from the apostate power, Daniel 7, verse 25, that thought it could change the very law of God. You know, in the book, The Abiding Sabbath, page 123 by George Eliot, he says this, what is proposed, that is in Daniel 7, verse 25, when it says you think to change the time and the law, what is proposed is to make an erasure in the heaven-born code. Is the eternal tablet of the law of God to be effaced by the creature's hand? He who proposes such an act should fortify himself by reasons as holy as God and as mighty as his power. In other words, what he's saying is that no earthly power has the authority to change the very law of God. There is a call, a call going out to the world tonight, today, this very day that you're watching this telecast. There is a call going out for honest-hearted men and women for men and women that love Christ everywhere, to respond to his grace, to keep his commandments, to come out fully of the false teachings of Babylon. Jesus is reaching out and tens and thousands around the world are hearing that call. They're making their decision to follow the bride of Christ and not the Babylonian forces and the confused religious system of that fallen church pictured in the woman with sits on the scarlet-colored beast dressed in purple and scarlet. Here is God's final call, Revelation 18, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Come out of her, my people. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Where are most of God's people today? They're in churches called Babylon. They're in false religious systems. Churches that unknowingly have accepted error than truth. God says, come out of her, my people. Are you one of God's people? One of God's people that never knew these truths. One of God's people that never understood these truths. 
one of God's people. Do you hear the call of God? God says, come out lest you share in her sins. What is sin? It's the violation of God's law. Lest you receive of her plagues, the plagues are soon to fall. The plagues are coming, and Jesus has come. Jesus says, I love you. I desire for you to live with me forever and ever. I desire for you to be saved in my kingdom. In a commentary by Jameson Fawcett and Brown, it says this, in every apostate or world-conforming church, there are some of God's invisible and true church who, if they would be safe, must come out. Jesus says, come out of her, my people. His grace is sufficient for you. His grace is greater than all your sin. Listen, as Celestine comes to sing about that marvelous grace of God, were it not for grace, we would be lost. God's grace is calling you. God's grace is speaking to you. God's grace is appealing to you to follow truth. His love would come. 
God's grace speaks to you right where you are. God's grace reaches you right where you are. It's no accident that you turned into this telecast tonight. It is grace that brought you here to make an eternal decision to be done with falsehood, not to drink of the wine cup of Babylon's traditions any longer, but to accept God's truth and walk in it through the grace of Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that grace is sufficient, grace is all strengthening, and that we can follow you in your grace and by your grace forever. We decide to do that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. My friend, you are a child of grace. Walk in grace today and forever. This completes Revelations, episode 21, Revelations Final Appeal. Stay tuned for the next episode, which will be following. Thank you, and bye-bye. Pass. Mic off.